Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future, because your future is now. And it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. In this episode, I welcome Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She's an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and core faculty member in women's studies at the University of New Hampshire. She's also a columnist for New Scientist, and her work exists at the intersection of particle physics and astrophysics. She's primarily a theoretical researcher, but has deep knowledge of and a connection to observational astronomy. Essence Magazine recognized her as one of 15 Black women who are paving the way in STEM and breaking barriers. Her work has been featured in several venues, including the Huffington Post, Gizmodo, Nylon, and African American Intellectual History Society. And in 2017, she received the LGBT Plus Physicists Acknowledgement of Excellence Award. I'm so excited about this episode because not only do I have a great deal of admiration and respect for Dr. Prescott Weinstein, she's also a colleague at UNH. So, I look forward to sharing her with some, introducing her to others. Time to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. I'm thrilled to welcome an engaging educator, a phenomenal physicist, an unapologetic feminist, and a dear colleague, Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein to Tech Intersect. I asked her to join me to answer, I don't know, some really easy questions like where we come from and how we fit into the greater galactical system and and whether Wakanda actually exists. (laughs) (laughs) That should only take a few minutes and then we'll delve into the topic of inclusion and equity in the STEM space and also her forthcoming book, The Disordered Cosmos, a popular science book which draws from her experience and knowledge as a Black woman theoretical physicist. Dr. Prescott Weinstein, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be talking to you. I feel like we're ships passing in the night on Twitter (laughs) and online. I'm a real person. You're a real person. And someday we'll be in the same space at the same time. Um, But I admire you and uh, from afar and near. And I'm really thrilled to have this convo with you. Um, for so many different reasons. But first, I'd love for you to share with the listeners your origin story and what led you to pursue a life path in physics and astronomy, uh, even what the study entails, and and most importantly, why it makes your heart sing, because I know you love it very, very much. So talk about your origin story and, and all of that. So I guess um, from a fairly young age, I was pretty excited about doing math. Like I was uh, the dorky kid who sat around after school writing at her times tables over and over again, like for my own entertainment. Nice. And I got um, introduced to science for the first time when I was in fifth grade when I was 10 and became clear I was excited by physical science type things like the ideas behind why planes stay in the air, like how they manage to fly and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So my mom 
I was raised by a single mom. She took me to go see a matinee of Errol Morris's film, A Brief History of Time, which is a documentary about Stephen Hawking. It has mm. the, the name, the same name as the famous book by Stephen Hawking, popular science book. And halfway through the film, I was like, wait, 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 you can get paid to do math that tells you about the universe and will answer questions that Einstein was unable to answer in his lifetime. Like this is a career path. Mm. And I was like, this is what I want to do. Cause I was just like, so I get to do math for the rest of my life. And I get to answer these amazing questions that Einstein was trying to answer. And if Einstein thought it was an important question, it's an important question. So I walked out of the movie theater, age 10, begging my mom for a copy of the book. And my mom didn't get it for me because she was afraid I would become discouraged trying to read this adult popular science book. (laughs) And so her older brother bought it for me for my 11th birthday. And that's, I guess, the beginning. Wow, that's tremendous. And I love that you, you recognized your connection to it and your love of it at an early age. And also that it was important that you had people in your life that would support you in that. I can imagine there are so many girls in particular, women of color and black girls more specifically, who are dissuaded from engaging in the material whenever you're open and ready. And so that has to be an important part of your story as well to get the support that you need to even be encouraged. Yeah, I definitely... I come from a family of teachers and Mm. I definitely think that I benefited from that. Even my mother's, my mother's an immigrant from Barbados and her family basically came to the United States because even though her parents were both teachers and probably two of the best like educated people in their village, Mm. um, the family basically didn't have enough to eat. And so they came to the United States. But, you know, her parents were teachers in Barbados and and took that very, very seriously. My mom became a teacher. My, my mom and actually both of her siblings are all teachers. So oh, interesting. At the point where I was born, my mom had already moved into being a full-time organizer and primarily unpaid uh, organizer and stay-at-home mother. So, but I think that that was a really big influence for me. And I think it was a big influence for them that like they came of age in the 60s -hmm. in Brooklyn. My mom was Mm -hmm. 13, had was about to turn 13 when they came to the United States And so I think that they understood very much the importance of education for Black children and creating opportunities for Black children. In fact, my mom was a volunteer for the Black Panther Breakfast Program in Ocean Mm -hmm. Hill-Brownsville, which is where she taught when she graduated from from university. I think that that was a big piece of it. I also think that actually my cousin, who's the oldest member, um, or one of, I guess, yeah, I don't know if he's the oldest member. I probably didn't be saying this on a podcast. He's one of the, <laughs> the older members of my generation of cousins was actually, um, he's a Franklin Pierce graduate, so now University oh. of New Hampshire Law School. Yes. And so he's 10 years older than me. And so I also always had him ahead of me being very accomplished. And he was really, I think, really the first person in the family to go on to like a professional degree, like a PhD, MD, JD type degree. And so I think that that seemed like a more reachable goal because I was seeing my cousin go off and do these really, really important things. But yeah, I think I was really lucky that I'm, I don't think my mom is a women's rights organizer. So for her, there were no barriers. And in fact, I don't know if maybe she felt like there was a political imperative to make sure that I knew that these were things that I could do. 
Absolutely. And and so that had to inform your point of view as a feminist theorist as well. I can imagine it's part nature, but clearly part nurture yes. <laughs> as well. <laughs> and so I'm wondering how the the feminist lens through which you, you view your work, your life, personally, professionally, how does that inform your work in researching and teaching in the physics and astronomy spaces? I should start by saying that I think despite maybe having an unusual kind of preparation in in that my mother, Margaret Prescott, was like this huge like influence mm. on me in terms of like my my political thought and coming from an organizer family, both on my mom's side and on my father's side, that I went into university like fairly naive about how gender dynamics and patriarchy, like I just kind of thought sexism, patriarchy, misogyny, they were all like guys making inappropriate jokes and Mm. excluding women who should be included, like by saying, oh, you shouldn't be in the room. And if it wasn't something really brazen like that, it wasn't really like I I had no kind of concept of structural phenomena where there would be things at work where it wasn't people saying or doing things actively, but systems in place to kind of lock people out. And it was really actually going through the process of earning a joint bachelor's degree in physics and astronomy and astrophysics, and then going into a master's in astronomy and astrophysics, and then really my PhD in physics. I would say, unfortunately, my my four years in that PhD program were like an incredible lesson in patriarchy. Mm. And I think like going through graduate programs and then entering into being a postdoctoral researcher, I was forced to learn. And so I think where I benefited from the training that I got from my mother was that I knew where to look. I had a sense of what direction to go in when I saw things. I, I would say that even having grown up around her, I really didn't understand kind of how it would manifest in my life. I thought when I went to to university that I would stand out a little bit. I had dreadlocks when I was for the first year and a half of college. And so Mm -hmm. I thought maybe I was visibly going to stand out. And I think I was a lot more aware that racism was going to be a factor in my life, even as a light-skinned person. But I didn't have an understanding of how sexism and patriarchy would play a role. So for me, it was really becoming a physicist became part of my education of, as, as a feminist theorist and, the, mm. and taught me the necessity of being a feminist. And I would say the way that I really bring it in is that it changes the way that I think about mentoring women right. in conversations in my office about like, you know, how are you giving that presentation, keeping in mind that, and it's absolutely not fair, but the moment you sound like you have questions about what you're doing on your research, that I know for a fact, because I've heard so many stories about this and I've had it happen to me, that people assume your incompetence in a way that they don't assume if a man raises a question about his work. And so preparing people, and then I would say that I have learned a lot more about history of science than maybe your typical physicist. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes I bring that into the classroom in the form of anecdotes, like, oh, this was actually part of a slave trading expedition that they went and looked at this eclipse. And that's part of the story. That's a really important part of informing what you do. And it, it doesn't always require, and I'm thinking of my own methods of teaching and what I bring into the classroom as well, that 
first of all, it's a radical act uh, for me to just be in the in the classroom. I don't have to be on a diversity board. I don't have to do all of the other things that I would ordinarily participate in, but just my presence alone, but the unique opportunity to bring other experiences into the classroom when I'm teaching pure doctrine. I don't have to stay within the four corners of a book. I don't have to read off of the page, but I use that as the beginning, but provide the context of my own experience as a Black queer woman who is an intellectual property lawyer, but also creative and all of the other things. And just by mentioning, including, it becomes a part of just the ethos of my class rather than the one day that's carved out for a special attention. And I think that's really important and impactful. And I think that's a great way to approach the process of educating in any discipline by informing it with cultural references, just as a matter of course. Yeah, I absolutely, you know, it's, it's, I guess to give an example in my stellar astrophysics class last summer semester. So it was intro to astrophysics, but really mm-hmm. because it's part of a one-year course, we mostly did stars at various points. I'm a history nerd. So I just like to give like history anecdotes about everybody. So it's not just about like minoritized people. It's not just about white women or black men or whatever in science. Right. But like, if I think there's an interesting note, I'll tell you about it in class And as I was preparing my lectures about neutron stars and the discoveries of pulsars, which are these neutron stars, so they're basically stars that are primarily made of neutrons. They're what happens at the end of a supernova, basically, is what is left over is either a neutron star or a black hole. Mm -hmm. And there are these special ones that pulse because they basically are like a lighthouse. So they're rotating and there's a beam of light that's coming out at a specific angle. And occasionally that beam turns in our direction. So it looks like a lighthouse. So it pulses, and this is why they're called pulsars. So the woman who first discovered these, Jocelyn um, Bell, was a graduate student. And eventually her advisor went on to win the Nobel Prize for the discovery. Mm. And I realized as I was writing my lecture notes, I actually remember saying to my spouse, oh, no, I'm going to have to tell them this story in class. And it's going to be terrible for the women students to have to kind of hear the story. But given that my habit in this class is when there's an interesting historical note, I tell them here's how a discovery happened. I have to tell them this was something discovered by a graduate student and then her PhD advisor was given the prize for it. So I think that's a really good example, which is that I tell them anecdotes along the way. Like I was even telling them about the astronomical magnitude system and how it's actually tuned to the way that the human eye works. Well, um, which I actually, I, I had a student who stopped me in the middle of that discussion and asked me if I was making things up. <gasps> Yeah, which is part of the the part of what you said earlier about being questioned <laughs> about yes. your yes. expertise. He said, "Do you know what you're talking about, or are you just making things up?" And you know, when moments like that happen, you're also aware that for the women students in the classroom who are maybe like aware of my activism and my viewpoint, they're watching me to see, can I handle this situation? Or am I only, you know, saying that these are things that I advocate for, but then when push comes to shove, I can't stand up for myself. And at the same time, that student who's pushing me in that way, regardless of why I think that they're doing it, they're still a student in my classroom and I do have to teach them. That's powerful. And that shows, shows a centeredness and a mindfulness of your role and your presence there. And it's not about you. 
there's so many people who are reactive in the classroom and just to, to hold the space and provide countless learning opportunities is actually really important. They'll either think, thank you now, thank you later, or thank you never, but, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but you're doing the good work out there. So keep that up. We hope you're enjoying this edition of Tech Intersect. Our conversation will continue in a moment, but first, a word on an exciting opportunity. The Tech Intersect podcast is released to the public every Friday, but as an Advantage Evans member, you'll receive first listen access and live Tech Intersect Connect video chats. Premium members also receive a copy of my ebook, The Gen Xer's Guide to Upskilling in a Web 3.0 World, and unlimited access to the video chat replays and bonus episodes. My pro members, ready to leverage what they've listened to and learned, receive access to the Upskilling Self-Guided Course and VIP group coaching calls. So as you can see, Advantage Evans membership adds substantial value to your podcast experience. And there are three ways to take advantage. (laughs) See what I did right there? Of all that the Tech Intersect podcast has to offer. So subscribe now and let's listen, learn, and leverage together. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. And now, back to the conversation. Fantastic. So just as we can tell from the beginning of our conversation, identity recognition, certainly for me, and, and I suspect for you as well, is a major part of, of just how you move in the world, both in real life and on social media with your digital representative. <laughs> and I'm always interested to know why is it intentional? Is it unintentional? Is it a mix of the two? And and also the, the, the latter part of that is the origins of the hashtag Black and STEM which I uh, picked up uh, as well and use from time to time, but I actually don't know the origins of it. Yeah, so Black and STEM was created by Dr. Stephanie Page, who she's a a Black woman, biochemist slash biophysicist. I don't really understand like bio anything, so (laughs) don't ask me any questions about it. I know she, most recently, she's been doing some research on on relating to cancer, so doing important work. So she really, she kind of started pushing this hashtag and she created an account to go with it. And she hosts these like weekly discussions where people can kind of chime in on the hashtag about a specific topic. Like she'll ask some questions and then people can respond and she retweets them. And I would say Black and STEM is one of the reasons that I ended up becoming a heavy Twitter user was because I was meeting Black scientists that I yeah. wouldn't have found in any other way. And I've developed a strong friendship with Stephanie because of of that connection and with some other Black scientists. um, Danielle Lee is another example, Ray Burks, and um, there are other people. But like, as I'm listing, these are all Black women who are doing different types of research from mine. 
but I really consider them part of my core of people that I can connect with when I have questions. Ray and Danielle have been faculty for longer than me, so I've been getting mm-hmm. a lot of really amazing advice from them about surviving. So I would say I have a lot of mixed feelings, particularly about, well, no, I'll say about Facebook and Twitter. Yes. Um, and I think that Black and STEM is one of the reasons that actually it's hard to leave Twitter is because of the community that exists there. And the way that you see that folks who are younger than me are using social media, that it's hard to abandon Twitter when you know that they're there and they're looking for people who might be giving voice to things that they didn't know it was okay to articulate about their experiences as students of science. Right. Absolutely. And I guess your example earlier of being in a classroom we can view in some oddly wonderful and horrifying way at the same time, the experience of being on social media and using it as a a mechanism or tool to connect and inform and question and challenge and uplift and, and all of those things. And, and you have a considerable following. So the the absence (laughs) would be not insignificant. I balance that always with self-care first, But in the same way that you're holding the space in your classroom on campus is the same way that I view your work online as well, that you're constantly teaching. That's another platform of education, even though I know that you take a lot of shrapnel (laughs) on you take you take a lot on social media. So maybe it's a pause, but not a complete departure. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely over the winter break, I took a couple of weeks off and thought quite a bit about what are the dynamics about it that I like and the dynamics about it that I don't like. And then I came back to kind of a, a terrible political moment for Jewish people. And as a Black Jew, found myself trying to navigate conversations that I felt were laced with racism against Black people and a lack of consideration specifically for people who are both Black and Jewish like myself. Right. And then had to weather a a week of death threats because of that. Wow. And, you know, to be in conversation with university administrators about it and having to talk to my department chair about like the emails and the voicemails that he's getting And, you know, having to think about what pressure does this put on my science, that my science has to be so excellent that when they're reading my tenure dossier, they're remembering more of that than remembering the time that they got an email laced with the N word and the K word, which is the the kinds of things that we've been getting. And so there's, there's really this very sharp edge to it, particularly, I think, if you have a large following. And then I think that there are these other kind of edgy parts that are maybe a little bit duller than that, but Mm -hmm. where people are making a lot of assumptions, if you have a lot of followers, why you have a lot of followers, whether you really love having a lot of followers. And I have to say, I was not one of those people who sought to have a large following. (laughs) Right, right. I don't get that energy from you at all, actually. No, I mean, and I think, you know, honestly, I think everybody knows that I would probably make different language choices if that was like (laughs) a high concern for me. Right. For me, this is really, I, I think an anxiety I've always had as a scientist um, and as even going back to when I was, you know, a 17 year old frosh in college was that I don't want to forget who I am 
because it is beneficiary to forget who I am. From my point mm. of view, forgetting who I am also means forgetting values and responsibilities to the communities that made any of what I'm doing right now possible. Like my mom, right. my grandmother went to the march on Washington. My mother sat on Brooklyn Bridge many times. At one point, she sat down on Brooklyn Bridge with her sister because they were just tired. Everybody was marching across. And they heard a voice behind them that was like, sisters, why are you sitting down? And my mom said, we're tired. And they turned around and the guy said, y'all have to get on it. <laughs> like, mm. <laughs> just have to get up. They turned around and it was Malcolm X. Wow. Wow. So I remember asking my mom, like, when you get tired, how do you keep going? And she tells me the story. But I think of that as like Malcolm X told my mother to get up and she's telling and through that, I am also being told by him to get up. And so I don't yeah. feel like I have the option of just being like, I'm a success now. I have a PhD. I have a nice position. I have a nice home. I'm married. I'm good. But that I have to understand that my success doesn't automatically translate into the success of everybody who needs more out of this world. I'm glad that you, first of all, it's a, a tremendous story. I, I felt chills as you said it. I didn't even know. I, I thought it was great that someone just said, you have to get up. <laughs> I didn't know that, they, I, you know, I didn't wait for the shout moment. That is um, tremendous, but I'm glad that informs your choices and decisions. And I'm, I'm glad that that buoys you in times when you feel like you just want to check out and go on with a well-ordered life. So that says a lot about you. I'm interested also, let's talk about your forthcoming book. I know you're working on the disordered cosmos. Um, tell me why you're writing it, the impact that you hope that it has on others. And I ask because I've reviewed a lot of your work at a very high level. I tend to fall down many a rabbit hole <laughs> because, and you have a lot of wonderful rabbit holes in which to fall. But I see how you purposefully and unapologetically engage and all of the ways that we've talked about moving boldly forward. And I'm interested to know how that comes out in this type of writing as well. The way that I'm thinking about it right now, I have to give credit to Darnell Moore, who wrote a memoir about his life. And I think I'm, I'm hoping I'm not getting the title wrong. I think it's called No Ashes in the Fire. Okay. And it's about growing up and coming into adulthood and figuring himself out as a black gay man from a working class family who is committed to social justice. And I interviewed him about the book and asked him about the process of writing it. And he said that one of the nice things about writing the book was that it required him to sit down and think bigger and in terms of a longer, to have just longer thoughts than you can have when you're just being reactive on social media. This is just right. kind of paraphrasing one of the things that he said to me. But I have to give him a lot of credit for really, I... I'm not writing a memoir. My book is much more kind of a cross between essay collection and popular science, but definitely it's about physics. It's about how race and gender and politics shape how physics is done, what we know about physics, even the language that we use within mm -hmm. physics. So that's kind of where the book is. I also tweeted today that my book is the worst friend that I've ever had. So I'll like, help it. <laughs> I have, I, I, partly because I, I'm, I'm working through editing now and I've realized that actually I'm finding editing just like difficult to do because unlike the process of writing where I was just like writing one word after another. So it's like right. one foot in front of the other. 
I now have to kind of keep track of moving text around and cutting and pasting, but not having something accidentally be doubled. And it requires looking at it. It's a lot more like moving from walking to choreographing a dance, which is not something I've done since I was in performing arts school when I was in like elementary and middle school. So um, it's, it's been an interesting experience. I guess like the one thing I really want to say about it is that it's a book that I hope that if I could have put it in 16-year-old Chanda's hands when she was making decisions about where to go to college and trying to fortify herself for Harvard if that was still the choice that she would make, which maybe we would have a conversation about that, Okay, um, that it would give her something to get her through it in maybe a, a more empowered way than the way that I went through it. So I really want it to be for Black girls who maybe aren't like their white classmates in physics or for queer Black girls who are maybe like, I am a girl, but you know what? I am a girl because the world treats me like a girl. That's not how I feel on the inside, which has been Mm -hmm. my experience. So there's Mm -hmm. a chapter in the book about that and about how it's shaped my life as a scientist. I think the hardest thing is that right now, the draft of the book contains a chapter about sexual misconduct in science. And I felt I couldn't write about gender in a book on science without talking about Me Too. Right. Um, and that's a hard thing to think about young women having to read. And at the same time, a friend of mine who was unfortunately abused as a child said to me, like, look, I would have valued a lot having a book that spoke to me about things that were happening to me and gave me a vocabulary for it. That's powerful because it gives you the it would give that person, that young girl, or whatever age that she was um, violated or abused, the sense that she's not alone and that there were options. Mm. And and to see yourself, oneself differently in that moment transforms an entire lifetime, without question. I hope that the impact you intend, you have a soft voice, but you speak with a loud voice just because <laughs> it's amplified in, in every space. Um, I love that you're mindful of that. And I I love that you are writing this book. I'm very interested in it. The uh, creative side of my brain as a former performance poet, and I have other books and I'm, you know, a voracious reader at every stage of my life, less so now. So I'm actually trying to restore myself by getting back to the, the origins of what gives me that sense of self and balance. And it sounds like what you're working on is the sweet spot to that. And I can imagine that it is quite therapeutic for you in this moment too. At least I know my writing has been for me. Yeah, I definitely, I hope it has some kind of impact because otherwise like, why did I, why did I drag myself and my spouse and everybody else through it? With your um, horrible friend, the book, right? With, the manuscript, with, right? With my, my horrible friend, the book. Um, I, I guess one thing I'll say is that actually I learned something about myself in the process, which I knew because I'm a particle cosmologist. Um, I knew that I wanted to write about particle physics. But when I actually sat down to write about particle physics, my editor had said to me, you know what, you should just like let yourself be weird. <laughs> I told her I'd been writing these weird tweets about neutrinos, like these sort of like weird joke tweets about neutrinos, which are like these very late particles that for a long time we thought actually were massless. But it turns out they have some kind of mass, but it's very small and we don't mm-hmm. understand them. Um, so I had been like writing these weird tweets and she was like, you know, you should just think about writing a chapter that like lets yourself kind of do that. 
And I ended up going on this very long rant about quantum chromodynamics. And I was like, Mm. hey, it turns out I like quantum chromodynamics, which is the aspect of particle physics that governs quarks, if you've heard of quarks. So quarks are... Neutrons are made of three quarks and protons are made of three quarks. So they're considered fundamental elementary particles. And as you can see, I'm quite happy to tell you about these. The funny thing about that was realizing that these were the same particles that I was obsessed with in high school, reading a brief history of time, trying to tell my friends on the school bus about it. I didn't know anything about quarks. Even though now my my understanding of science is enriched and I've actually had an opportunity to open the box and look in the inside, I'm basically still that kid who's like, right. works, cool. <laughs> it's a full circle moment. How did that happen? See, there are no accidents in this universe. <laughs> Absolutely. That's amazing. Well, I, um, in honor of your time and and to be respectful of it, I see we're pushing up against the end of our time together. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to tell listeners how they can connect with you and your work. Yeah. So I guess uh, right now, probably the best way to learn more about what I'm doing is to go to profcpw.com. That's my website. You can find me there. You can also find me on Twitter at IBGyongi, but actually my account is private right now. So I think it's like not very helpful to advertise it. (laughs) Um, But there there is um, a contact form on my website, and I actually really like hearing particularly from Black parents who mm. are trying to figure out how to encourage and support their children who are interested in physics. So if I can't get back to you, I always, if I'm seeing a pattern with a question that I'm getting a lot, I try and write a blog entry. So you can also find me at medium.com with the at symbol and then my first name, Chanda. Um, and that's where I blog. And I, I encourage people to keep up with my blog and also to keep up, um, get a subscription to The New Scientist and read my monthly column about particle physics and cosmology. Excellent. I'm going to drop links to all of the relevant information in the show notes so that you can connect. Dr. Chanda Prescott Weinstein, I appreciate you, the work that you're doing. I love how you're moving through the world and I'm happy to be along for the ride. So thank you very much for spending this time with me. Well, if I don't say so myself, this was an unapologetically dope conversation at the intersection of education, physics, astronomy, identity recognition, and feminist theory. (laughs) That's a lot all in one, but that is all in Dr. Prescott Weinstein. And I'm really, really excited and grateful that she took the time to speak with me so that I could share all that information with you. Dr. Prescott Weinstein is a trailblazer, no doubt, and she leads by example challenges assumptions and resists the status quo by being herself fully and with excellence. And she encourages us all, especially those like me, who proudly rep a Black and STEM identity. She wants us to boldly and unapologetically do the same. Now, remember, even though being yourself can sometimes come at a cost to your mind, your peace, your health, relationships, or job, do it anyway. Better to disappoint others than yourself. That's all for now. Until next time, continue to shine. Stay in touch with host Tanya Evans via your favorite social media. On Twitter at at Tech Intersect and on Instagram via the handle Tech Intersect. 
This podcast has been produced by Stephanie Renee for Soul Sanctuary Incorporated.